The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Hello, I'm Karen Gordon. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. What's in a name? The people blocking trains to protest a pipeline on Wet'suwet'en territory call themselves land defenders. But our guest, a CEO whose company depends on a healthy oil industry, calls them eco-terrorists. Lights, camera, adjourned. As the jury prepares to deliberate in the Harvey Weinstein case, we hear from a reporter who's been in the courtroom every step of the way. Youth in advertising, the vaping company Juul has always insisted it doesn't market its e-cigarettes to kids. But the Attorney General of Massachusetts disagrees, and she says she's got the proof to back it up. Explosive allegations. After an American B-52 bomber exploded over Spain in 1966, hundreds of soldiers were deployed to help clean up. Now one of those veterans tells us how it feels to join a class action lawsuit against the government, one of the first of its kind. Trouble date. A woman in Massachusetts went out with a man she met on a dating app and ended up being the unwitting accomplice in an armed bank robbery. And rewinding history. A woman is reunited with a mixtape she lost 20 years ago after the cassette washes up on a beach almost 2,000 kilometers away. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that knows if she wants to revisit her musical memories, she'll have to find a Walkman to remember. Indigenous environmental activists continue to blockade rail lines and business is beginning to pay the price. The protests were launched after the RCMP removed Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders who had been blocking construction on a natural gas pipeline in northern B.C. They're now stopping everything from oil shipments to everyday commutes. And the Mohawk activist Ellen Gabriel says that's the point. Our laws are being trampled on. Our human rights are being trampled on. What would you do if your human rights were being trampled on? You would want to do your best to protect it, and the people have been doing it in a peaceful way. We have been inconvenienced for over 500 years, and I understand what people are saying about being inconvenienced. But I want to say that we have the right to protect our land. It is our homelands. It is our right to protect our lands. And the government is the one that is not being reasonable because after 30 years I see the same thing that is going on because governments refuse to respect our rights. That was the Mohawk activist Ellen Gabriel speaking to the CBC this afternoon. Marie Mullen is the CEO of the Mullen Group, which does trucking for the oil sectors in Canada and the United States. We reached Mr. Mullen in Victoria. Mr. Mullen, you just heard Alan Gabriel ask the question, what would you do if your rights were trampled on? Would you not protest? What's your answer to her? I can't put myself in their shoes. 
to be honest with you. But this is a struggle that has been going on, as they said, for 500 years. So how do we resolve it? Are we going to do it for another 500 years? I can tell you, from my perspective, what I'm seeing happening and how it's going to uh, inconvenience and cause a lot of challenges in the supply chain for uh, a lot of Canadians. So what's that, the, the inconvenience, what's the price for that in business terms? It's going to be an inconvenience in the short term to a lot of individuals, to a lot of travelers and via rail. It's going to be a tremendous inconvenience to uh, anybody that relies upon the rail. And then it's going to turn from an inconvenience to a real harm if we don't get our heads around this and get this resolved relatively quickly, which I think is a federal, this is a federal government issue. This has nothing to do with industry or whatever else. Uh, This is much bigger than just pipelines, as you heard it. This is about the movement. This is about our lands. This is about something that's been going on for a long time. But if you have the blockades and you have rail traffic in eastern Canada, particularly, going to be blockaded, you're going to find that it's going to really impact the supply chain. You're not going to be able to move things to people that need it every day. We rely upon it as society. There's a lot of product that just cannot move other than rail. So I'm thinking, how do you get propane and how do you get certain product to consumers? I mean, there could be significant consequences. Andrew Shear says that the RCMP should be sent in to sort this out, to shut down these protests and the blockades. What do you say? Oh, man, this is so complicated. I wish we could do it through consultation. Um, uh, I wish we, you know, I honestly, I think every Canadian would say, can we not resolve this? But uh, you're not going to resolve the issue, in my view, through blockades. You're not going to resolve the issues, you know, 500 years of issues over one, over one issue. Nobody but, can be held hostage on that. But Canada what else do you do? No, just, just, I mean, what else do you do at this point when, you're, when no one is listening to you, when you're sending in the RCMP to break up a, a barricade, um, instead of sitting down and talking to people? So what, what else can you do at that point except protest? Um... Well, I, 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 don't, I don't have the answer to that, but, but let's see. Is it okay for small interest groups to hold the whole country hostage after the rule of law has been applied? You That's call, what you, we're really talking about. You call about. the small interest groups that are doing this? The, well, the hereditary chiefs is a very small interest group. Well, this has gone beyond hereditary chiefs. This, these are different groups of Indigenous people in different movements across the country. This is a, a general call for people to rally and support the Wet'suwet'en. So, so how many people? That. Ask, let, let, let's break it down. Is it everybody or is it some? Because you cannot have, you cannot say it's everyone if, if most of the ones that were impacted by this have all signed on and said, you know, this makes good sense for our people. It's opportunity. It's a way for us to get ahead. And the elected chiefs have all done it. They represent the majority. So, yes, there's always going to be special interest groups that tie into any movement. But is it fair to say that every First Nations person in this country is against every development? That is that is not fact. Well, we've talked to a woman who does support the Coastal Gas Link, but she also said that she wants to see the, the hereditary chiefs respected, have them listened to, have them sit down with them. That's why I say to you, I, I'm hopeful although I wouldn't be optimistic, that you can sit down and say, well, what, what is it? What's, there is no solution, in my view. There won't be a solution other than, uh, no, this is my land. You can't come across it. 
Well, what about the other folks that are on the land that are First Nations that want those jobs? That's their land. No, it's not. It's my land. I don't have the answer to that. I think it's much broader than the pipeline. That's what I'm saying. Uh, but the pipeline has, uh, has brought it to a head. You said elsewhere that the blockade you regard as a new form of eco-terrorism. What do, yes. you mean, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. I mean, they're going to be able to hold the country at hostage because they don't get their way. So uh, you can consult. I don't get it. Therefore, I say no. But in a rule, in a democracy, the majority, that's what you do. You, the majority gets to set the policy. You'll, we'll never get 100% of the country to agree on any issue, but you still have to move the country ahead, and that's what makes democracy work. Terrorism is, a, is, is those are extremists who use violence to achieve their goals. Do you regard them in that light? Uh, no, I said there, there are groups that will do that, and we've seen that across many, many uh, countries. Where, but where, where, is, but, I've, I've already heard some of, the, some of the people say they're not coming across. We'll use whatever means are required. Well, that's not consultation. Where have so, you seen violence, though, in the Canadian movement? Well, we'll find out. I think if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the RCMP go in, will that lead to something? That's what I was saying. Right, it could but, lead to anything because it gets out of hand, right? That's what happens in these situations if you can't sit down and negotiate. But there has not been, just to point out, there has, the police have gone in, there hasn't been violence through the whole Idle No More movement. Police went in, there, were, there was no violence. There was, in all those cases, they were strong, but they were nonviolent protests. So I just want to know where the evidence is that they are potentially violent. Well, I think any situation, so I, that was just my view, is that it could, when you take a look at what's happening around the world, things can happen and when you get these movements. I'm not saying they're going to do it. I'm saying it could happen. These, that's what could happen. But it doesn't... There, there, there's, there are not just First Nations people that are protesting today. Protests gather lots of people that really have their own axe to grind, and they, they, uh, you know, they use this as their, uh, as their platform. We'll have to leave it there, Mr. Mullen. I appreciate Excellent. speaking with you. Thank you. Ray Mullen is the CEO of the Mullen Group. We reached him in Victoria. He's been vilified, ostracized, and his many accusers helped spark a movement. But soon a jury will decide whether Harvey Weinstein is criminally guilty of sexual assault. For the past five weeks, Mr. Weinstein has been in a New York courtroom charged with sexually assaulting two women. He has pleaded not guilty. Today, closing arguments wrapped up and the jury could begin deliberating early next week. J. Clara Chan is the media and politics reporter for The Wrap, an online entertainment news source, and has been covering the case. We reached her in New York. Clara, you have been there in court throughout this case. What was the mood like during closing arguments and as the trial finally wrapped up? 
Well, it's been it's been a long time coming today for the closing argument. The prosecution, I think, did a pretty good job of weaving together the testimonies of the women who are at the center of this case and making their ultimate argument that Weinstein was essentially a predator who preyed upon all of these women. Um, you know, it's certainly a, a ser- serious accusations that are being made against him, and I don't think anyone in that room did not feel that. Uh, just to, what what you're talking about here, there are six women who testified, um, though he faces charges is only in the cases of two of those women. Can you tell us a bit about what kind of case the prosecutors made about those women? Sure. Uh, so as you were saying, two of the women, their accusations form the basis of the charges. So that's Miriam Halle and Jessica Mann. Um, and then there are three other women allowed to testify to help the prosecution bolster its case. And what's the story? What is the, the story that the prosecutors were telling using the testimonies of those women? Essentially, they were saying, you know, these six women spanning over several, several years, they don't even know one another, yet all of them shared in some ways, this harrowing experience with Harvey Weinstein. Um, they pulled together elements of their testimonies that contain similarities in terms of, you know, some of the violence that they alleged in their testimonies, um, similar sentiments of fear um, that the woman expressed while testifying that they could see through lines for. So at the end of the day, for the prosecution, what their picture is or what they're trying to convince the jury of is that for these six women, Weinstein was a predator and he assaulted all of them. Okay, and the defense was is making the case that these are women who uh, knew what they were getting into. They, they, they had consensual sex with Mr. Weinstein, that they went to hotel rooms to meet him voluntarily. These were all part of things that they, they, they willingly did as adults. And so mm-hmm. describe a bit more about how they made the case of the defense. So what they used heavily throughout many of their, you know, cross-examinations as well, but especially in their closing argument, were the number of emails or messages between some of these women and Harvey Weinstein that seemed friendly in nature. Um, and they would often use sort of rhetorical questions like, if indeed this person raped you, why would you be emailing him the next day or um, and saying nice things to him? Why would you be agreeing to meet him again? So using sort of that kind of rhetoric. Um, but something to note there is that the prosecution brought on an expert witness to kind of counter that framing of these witnesses' behaviors. Uh, She was a forensic psychiatrist. Um, And one of the things that she mentioned was, you know, it's not uncommon for survivors of sexual assault to communicate with the person who may have assaulted them after the case. It's not uncommon for them to try to appease them or try to seem friendly to them. These are not, you know, unexpected behaviors for, for survivors. Right. And and one of Mr. Weinstein's defense lawyers, Donna Rutuno, she has been criticized following an interview with the New York Times where she was asked if she'd ever experienced a sexual assault in her own life. And she said, I would never put myself in that position. Did that kind Mm -hmm. of tone and tenor make its way into her defense of Mr. Weinstein? Yes, she made this argument that the prosecution in their sort of own ironic way are becoming producers of their own production or whatever. And in this universe that they've created, they've essentially 
made a place where women are not responsible for their actions or shouldn't be held responsible for their actions. So, you know, her claim essentially through that is these women made choices. They were adults and they went into this knowing what could happen to them. Um, and so that kind of falls into the similar line of her, her interview with the, the New York Times podcast. How was Mr. Weinstein? How, what was his demeanor throughout this trial? If you've seen the pictures, he's been coming in with his walker. Um, He's taking notes diligently throughout a lot of the proceedings, but also at times he's been seen dozing off. He's eating candy as well. So it's a bit bit varied. And how were the the women who testified? Because they really opened up, didn't they? So how did you find them as they finished their testimonies in the cross-examination? You know, none of the women who testified were subpoenaed to do so. So they were all sort of there on their own volition and and talking about very private things that had happened to them. I think um, sort of the most perhaps memorable, I'm not sure is the right word, but um, Jessica Mann, she endured sort of a three-day process of testimony and cross-examination, which was the longest for any of the women. And certainly... um, there were moments where we had to break because things were getting very emotional for her. And Jessica Mann, she was an aspiring actress coming from a small town in Washington, said that he raped her in a hotel in Manhattan in 2013. Yes, that's correct. That's her accusation. Um, any sense of where the jury might go with this? It's kind of difficult to say. I mean, it has to be a unanimous decision. Um, there, there are f- sort of five felony counts that are being charged against Weinstein, and the, the jury will have to go through each of them um, and decide whether to convict or acquit. Um, and, you know, if there is even one person who who is a holdout in either way, that could, that could lead to a hung jury. I, I mean, I think it is a possibility. Clara, I appreciate your reporting, and I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Jay, Clara Chan is the media and politics reporter for The Wrap and has been covering the Harvey Weinstein trial. We reached Ms. Chan in New York. The attorney general in Massachusetts is smoking mad. She and her office contend that Juul was marketing its e-cigarettes to children, even as the company maintained its producers and its products are only for adults. The AG has filed a lawsuit against Juul, charging that the e-cigarette giant targeted young people, even advertising on Cartoon Networks, after it launched in June 2015. We reached Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy in Boston. Attorney General Healy uh, Jewell says it's always meant for its vapes to be for adults. Why do you believe they're not telling the truth? Well, it's clear from their own documents and what we uncovered in our investigation that that is not true. Jewell was not about getting adults to stop smoking. It was about getting kids to start vaping. And they did that from the very outset with their first ad campaign. They'd actually rejected a proposed ad campaign that was targeting older people and instead decided to go with an ad campaign that targeted young people. They chose models and images that really appealed to young people. They tried to recruit celebrities and social media influencers that were really popular with teens. They even went so far as to buy ad space on 
websites for kids like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. And finally, they sold and shipped e-cigarettes to kids underage um, through its website. So, you know, Juul, unfortunately, was really effective in its ad campaign because, you know, now the, the rates of, of teen vaping are just off the charts. We know that they, the, the idea is that of the vaping e-cigarettes was a form of harm reduction, that it was, it's con- still considered better than lighting up a cigarette. So how many of those young people would have been smoking cigarettes if not for vaping? You know, we polled and asked that question. 80% of them never would have started. 80%, an overwhelming majority of these uh, young people, of teenagers, say they never would have picked up a cigarette. They only vaped because they thought it was cool. Others were doing it. They also thought it was harmless. And so that's the sad fact. I mean, one of the reasons that Juul and others have used flavors is because flavors, you know, with names like mango and the mint flavors and cotton candy and, you know, there are any number of of flavors out there. The reason that they use these flavors is because they know that teens and young people like them. Can you describe some of the ads you're talking about and how they targeted youth? Yeah, the, the ads were really um, meant to convey that vaping was cool. It was a really popular thing to do. The ads themselves used people as models who look really young, definitely teens. They also really tried to um, use images that teenagers could relate to. A lot of focus uh, Joel made on trying to recruit these influencers, you know, on social media that a lot of uh, young people follow, like Cara Delevingne and Luca Sabat and others, and they were targeting, you know, kids in, in huge ways. You look at the ads that they were going to use uh, with old people, and then you look at the ads they ended up using, and, and you just know that this was a company that was looking to create a whole new class of consumers. And there are real questions about the harm, because, you know, We've had vaping illnesses, um, even deaths in uh, in the United States due to vaping, and, and we just but, need to know more about this yeah, but, as and, an and, issue. And we don't. We don't know what exactly they're still investigating know. those. Yeah. What created that? But I, just, I mean, I just wonder if they haven't already sort of changed their ways. Your lawsuit says this happened till early 2016. Did did mm-hmm. Jewel stop at that point? Well, they've stopped marketing to young people we believe, or at least they've represented that. We, we have yet to, to affirm that, though. But here's what's important. They have um, continued to uh, benefit from the market that they created, the market of young people. And one of the things that our lawsuit does is just demand that the profits that they made, you know, $3.3 billion in one year alone, we need that money in our states to help treat young people who are nicotine addicted. We've got, and I've talked to so many pediatricians who've who are treating kids now who go to sleep at night with a vaping device under their pillow, who can't concentrate in school, who have major anxiety as a result of, of, of juuling, just super addicted and need help and treatment. And that's part of what our action is about, getting money and getting, getting making penalties. You know, we've got to make companies pay. We've got to make them held accountable because it's, it's just wrong. Right. Uh, no one should profit 
off of uh, off of getting kids addicted. But hasn't all the noise that's been made about this by the law and by health professionals already turned this around quite a bit? I mean, Juul has announced that it's not gonna, it's pulling its flavored vape pods, um, which are popular teenagers in Canada as well. Uh, the uh, other e-cigarette companies, including Juul, are telling lawmakers in Washington they're they're changing their policies. They're not going to appeal to underage smokers. Haven't you already accomplished what what uh, needed to be done? Well, I think we have accomplished a lot. You know, we, we've made a big effort at educating the public about the harms of vaping. And it's true in a state like Massachusetts, we recently passed a law that banned the, uh, the flavors. And so that's good, positive development. But, you know, the vast majority of the com- country, uh, flavors are still available. It, it, it remains the case, too, I'll say, that the U.S. government and the, and the Food and Drug Administration um, hasn't done its job. It needs to be more active. It needs to, to get a better handle on these things. But in the meantime, you know, as a matter of public health and public safety, as an attorney general, I'm proud of the work of our team, what we've uncovered, right. and we're going to continue to seek to hold Jewel accountable in court for the harm that it's caused to you know, hundreds of thousands of kids all across this country. Attorney General Healy, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Great to speak with you. Bye-bye. Maura Healy is the Attorney General of Massachusetts. We reached her in Boston. In a statement, Jewell said the company is working, quote, cooperatively with attorneys general, regulators, public health officials, and other stakeholders to combat underage use and transition adult smokers from combustible cigarettes, unquote. The company also outlined the actions it's taking, such as removing flavored vape pods from retailers. Now, the making of a good compilation tape is a very subtle art, many do's and don'ts. First of all, you're using someone else's poetry to express how you feel. This is a delicate thing. That's John Cusack, or I guess his character, record store owner Rob Gordon, in the film High Fidelity. you got to kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you got to take it up a notch. Then you got to cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules. Anyway, I've started to make a tape. By the time that film came out, Stella Waddell had long finished her mixtape and lost it. Of course, she had no idea back then just how delicate an art her compilation would prove. The year was 1993, and the 12-year-old Ms. Waddell, who's from Berlin, was on holiday in Spain. Of course, she took her carefully curated mixtape along with her. She'd loaded it up with her favorite artists from a CD called Best of 93. It included a range of artists, Bob Marley, the Pet Shop Boys, UB40, for instance, and somewhere along the shores of Costa Brava on the island or on the island of Mallorca, a tape got lost in the sand and was carried away by the waves. Fast forward to last summer. Ms. Waddell is again on vacation, this time in Sweden. She walks into an art gallery in Stockholm, and in a touring exhibition called Sea of Artifacts, she spots it, a beat-up cassette tape with its track list displayed. When I was reading the track list, it seemed very familiar to me, she told The Guardian. I always made tapes to listen to them with my Walkman, especially for the holidays. 
Mandy Barker, the British artist behind the exhibit, had found the tape on the island of Las Palmas. She had it restored to playable condition, and, well, you know the rest. It just goes to show you how easy it is to lose tracks of time. If you have a phone, chances are that you've received that call. You know the one. It's the Canada Revenue Agency, and they're going to arrest you unless you pay them a large sum of money and fast. Two Canadians, police say, are involved in the elaborate scam, were arrested this week in Brampton, Ontario. The married couple faced charges related to fraud and money laundering. The RCMP say the couple were acting as what they call money mules between victims and sophisticated scam call centres in India. CBC Marketplace has done several investigations into CRA scams, even going to India to report on the call centres. David Common is a host on CBC Marketplace. We reached him in Toronto. David, you know as well as anybody just how resilient these CRA phone scammers are. So how big a deal is it that these two Canadians have been arrested? Well, I think it is both a big deal and then part of a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that this is a game of whack-a-mole. These call centers, which operate almost exclusively out of India, can shut down and restart very, very quickly. So, um, you know, taking out people on the other side of the world actually does have its advantages because there's fewer of them you're striking the scammers right in their wallet. And these are two people who allegedly were moving money from victims, Canadian victims, uh, who have lost millions of dollars when you count everybody up, and sending it to these organized criminal groups in India. And so striking them is, um, at least in theory, a much bigger impact than just taking out a call center. You were there uh, when the RCMP moved in on this couple in Brampton, Ontario, mm-hmm. just outside Toronto, or in the GTA. How long had they been tracking this couple before they moved in? They've known about this couple for uh, just shy of a year, since last March, and they've had them under surveillance for a good chunk of that time. The actual arrest themselves. It's actually quite something watching how they work. It was really early in the morning when this man left for work. Uh, He worked at a factory and about 20 minutes drive away from his house. The moment he stepped out of his home, uh, they were on him. And it was two or three unmarked police cars, constantly changing position, calling it on the radio, where he was driving, how he was driving, the speed he was at, all the way until he got to this parking lot, pulled into the lot. They don't think he had any clue because the moment he pulled into the space, three RCMP vehicles pull around him. He gets out of the vehicle so do six officers. He's under arrest and in handcuffs within seconds. Senior officers call his wife and say, we've got your husband. He's in custody. We need you to come to the police station. And if you don't come, you're going to be arrested. Yeah. Little did she know, she was also under surveillance. There were people right behind her talking the whole time. So these two are arrested, there, but the connection is back in India. So mm-hmm. what role did they play in this scam? So they're they're what's called super money mules or money mule managers. There are a number of ways that Canadian victims hand money over to these scammers. There once was a time that gift cards were the thing, but, you know, drugstores and other places that sell gift cards have put up signs saying, this is to pay your taxes or something, get away, Uh, you're, you're being scammed. And so they've gone back to sort of tried and true cash and sending cash to P.O. boxes and and, uh, being picked up by various people. These people are alleged to kind of be the supervisors, the, the highest level people perhaps in Canada sending that money back to these organized criminal syndicates back in India. And this is an interesting little tidbit that uh, the RCMP led on that uh, 
a number of the people they've been speaking with are actually here as international students. And they were either, the RCMP tell us, brought here specifically to be these money mules or were recruited once they got here as money mules. Either way, the RCMP and the Canada Border Services Agency are now looking to send a lot of those people back home. Yikes. And so, I mean, for people who, just to connect with what the public might remember, know about this, from the kinds of calls that we that we get, that just characterize the kinds of calls people are getting and where those are coming from, how the whole scam actually worked. These are calls that have plagued and annoyed and victimized Canadians for years. They started with duck cleaning. They went on to the CRA tax scam. Uh, they've done other things like the SIN card scam. That's the newest one, bank investigator scam. But they're all based basically the same. They call you, they threaten you, they say you've done something wrong, they have a limited window of time to fix it and it's going to cost you, you need to pay up right away, they give you a way to pay up, and uh, some people don't fall for it, some people do, and it has cost millions of dollars. And if you're one of those people who says, hey, I'd never fall for it, I just yell at these guys when they call me, just recognize that these guys are getting a lot better at what they do. They're much more sophisticated. They know more about the people they're calling. They're able to sound much more convincing and legitimate than they once did. And they can call spoof so they can make it look like someone else is calling you, like the actual police. The RCMP said it was uh, your expose, the CBC Marketplace expose on the these uh, CRA scam calls that highlighted the issues. Um, is that what finally provoked the RCMP to act on something that we have been aware of for some time? You know, I'd love to toot my own horn here, um, and and I will, I suppose. But the RCMP were the ones who quite explicitly have told us, including today during this news conference, that they likely would not be where they are now were it not for the attention brought by uh, an investigative report that we did. And I think really the key to that was we tapped into something that is a universal annoyance. Even if you've not been a victim, there's a societal impact. So many people don't pick up the phone anymore because of these scams. And that's a big cost. And I think the RCMP were busy on other things and not really considering just how much of an annoyance this was to so many Canadians. You also showed people, you, you interviewed people who had lost their life savings. And, mm-hmm. uh, and what, what, what impact did that have on them? You know, the people who often are most impacted by this are those who can least afford to handle it. I really think back to some people who I've sat with who have felt so alone and felt dumb, felt really, really awful. And their lives have changed profoundly. There's one guy who lost more than $100,000. And that, that wasn't everything he had. That was more than everything he had. He went to the bank and pulled a line of credit. He borrowed $5,000 from his son, took out money on his credit card. He borrowed money from his employer. He's going to be paying this back for years, and this is not a young man. And uh, there are so many people whose lives have been permanently and profoundly impacted by this scam. So for all of those who uh, see it as an annoyance, it is that. But there are some uh, who I I can't get their faces and their tears out of my mind. It's life-altering in a terrible way. David, thank you for your reporting, and thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. David Coleman is a host on CBC Marketplace. We reached him in Toronto.
As the CEO of the Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Commission, it was Steve Winter's job to buy fine wine on the province's dime. But a new audit shows he bought up to a third of that wine through his son's company. The audit, released yesterday by the province's Auditor General, includes a rush order for 96 bottles of wine through his son's company with an average retail price of $539 each. Only four of them have sold. According to Attorney General Julia Mullally, Mr. Winter may have, quote, breached his fiduciary, fiduciary duty to the NLC. Today, Mr. Winter denied those accusations to host James Jamie Fitzpatrick on the CBC's St. John's Morning Show. From the perspective of what the legislation in the province of Newfoundland Labrador says, I did not uh, commit any kind of uh, breach. Um, my position really in fiduciary duty was the same as the Conflict of Interest Act. And um, I mean, whether <clears throat> whether she likes the act or not, the act is the act, and that's what governs my, my behaviour. Doesn't look good, though, does it? Well, listen, This somewhere along the way, somebody has decided that they wanted to make Steve Winter look bad. But at somewhere and, along the way, shouldn't you have said, Steve, I don't know, like, shouldn't we be bringing other people in here to act as a middleman or something? This does not look like a great business relationship to well, anybody looking at it. Hang on, no. This whole process is, is being put out there by somebody who is trying to accomplish something, and it's not necessarily being depicted in the right way. I didn't buy wine from my son for the purpose of, of Bordeaux Futures. I dealt with about a dozen negotiants in Bordeaux, France, who I bought the wine from. I didn't buy them from Greg Winter. I didn't buy them from Rob Collingwood or uh, anybody else who may have represented the businesses out of Bordeaux. I dealt with the Bordeaux negotiations directly. And you know, I've done a little bit of homework on this since this became public. And over the six years that he was involved with uh, his business uh, and represented the negotiations, he would not have gotten any more than twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in commission. I don't know the exact numbers. I didn't know he was getting commission in the first place, but I've made it my business to try to understand more so I can defend myself and him. You know, people think just because there was millions of dollars bought that he got paid millions of dollars. Well, this is absolutely distorted. He got he paid, though, didn't he? But he might have made, I just told you, he made twenty-five dollars to $30,000 over six years. This, uh, this, is, this is not a big deal. Steve Winter speaking to CBC St. John's. Mr. Winter is the former CEO of the Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Corporation. He's been criticized in a new report by the province's Auditor General, who says Mr. Winter may have, quote, breached his fiduciary duty to the NLC. When an American B-52 bomber exploded over the small town of Palomares, Spain, in 1966, not many people knew about it. It was the Cold War, and the U.S. Air Force kept the explosion a closely guarded secret. But hundreds of soldiers were deployed to clean up the area, and those soldiers were exposed to pulverized plutonium from four hydrogen bombs that were on board. Now, more than half a century later, one of those men has managed to get his lawsuit certified as a class action against the Department of Veteran Affairs. But Victor Score says it's too late for many of his fellow veterans. Mr. Score is a retired chief master sergeant with the U.S. Air Force. We reached him in Las Vegas. 
Victor, how did it feel to find out that after all these years, your class action lawsuit against the Department of Veteran Affairs has been certified? When I received the call, I um, I teared up. It's that simple. I, I just couldn't believe it. It was it was fantastic news. And we're thinking of something that happened way back in 1966. This is related to how did you and the other um, Air Force uh, personnel ended up being exposed to this radiation? So it was an aircraft accident uh, during the, the ugly but peaceful Cold War, the Strategic Air Command of the United States Air Force kept loaded bombers in the air, and that's no secret anymore. But uh, uh, this was a normal refueling uh, over the coast of Spain. This little village was selected because of, of its remoteness. And 30,000 feet while they were lining up for refueling, the boom of the tanker made contact with the vital spot of the B-52, the bomber, and broke the bomber open. Wow. Um, did the plane? Uh, did the plane crash? Oh gosh, yes. The, the fire immediately went up into the tanker. We loaded the fuel, obviously, and they just they just ignited. Four people on that aircraft perished. Uh, there were seven men on the bomber. Four of them survived, and the others were perished. And four of the H bombs uh, dispersed, and the high explosives exploded upon impact. But and, now, uh, but just to, just to clarify for people who think that the four hydrogen bombs landed, they 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 were not actually carrying a nuclear detonation, right? Oh, they're ready, but they're not armed. So no, these, they're, they're these never bombs armed until until they've told to go to war. Good thing. And so, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> but the what what they did have was a, a lot of plutonium on them, right? So that's that became the big issue that needed to be cleaned oh, absolutely. up. Absolutely. Upon that explosion, those warheads broke open, two of them, broke and open. then they dispersed that plutonium, which is something, you know, we can't even see it, but it's as a half-life of 26,000 years. So that element was uh, was dispersed uh, on the ground and in the air, and, and our job was to find it and then decontaminate and then um, dispose of it. So th- there were many hundreds of... Troops yeah. scrambled together by the Air Force to to clean up which what must have been a very large debris site with a lot of plutonium laced material right yes ma'am yeah absolutely um, uh, my my job was was to be in that measurement uh, detection phase of it. It took sixty day, sixty two days from the time we started until the time that we 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 had the last of fifty four hundred barrels filled with contaminated material sealed and quality controlled and ready to go to the beach to go to the Navy for transport to the United States. And during all that time, you and the others were exposed to this plutonium, which is not something that it, it's the way it enters the system, I understand, is through it, you can inhale it. This is very small particles of this can get into your system. Were you given protective gear? What kind of, what kind of clothing or, or, or supplies were you given to protect yourselves from the plutonium? We went there with minimal respiratory protection. But that which we had, which was the old gas masks, was, was totally uh, inappropriate for the work that we had to do. Uh, so people ended up using doctors' surgical masks. Well, they have a, they have a purpose in the laboratory or in the hospital, but not for what we expected them. So there was no adequate protection. We were military sent to do a job. We had to do that job just like men going into battle have to do their job. 
At what point did you find out that you personally had been subjected to exposure that might be affecting your health? I, I retired to U.S. Air Force at 81. In 82, I started having uh, noticing a, a, a um, blood disorder. So then I su- submitted a, a um, claim to the VA. In 82 and 84, they denied it. Uh, they, they denied it because there are no records available, and that's a quote. I decided, I'm going to fight this sucker. So I, I've tried to get my medical records. I wasn't after anybody else's except mine. And under the Freedom of Information Act, I should be able to get that. But, but he said, these records do not exist, Chief. And that's when I told him, I know they're there, and I'm going to find them. Within two months, I got a letter back. We, you, your records will be made available to you shortly or something like that. When I finally got my records, I found that I had submitted six specimens. First one was in after about two weeks or so after I was there. I had 25% of the life permissible dose mm-hmm. in 24 hours. So, yeah, there's, there's, it's there. Right. But so you, and then you found out that you, that w- was on your record was you weren't alone, that there were others. Oh, Lord, no. There were others. When I got my records, the Air Force also provided me 25 others, I guess by clerical accident or something. So I not only got mine, but I got the same information for 25 others. And I immediately contacted them and informed them that their records were available. So how many people do you know who have already succumbed to cancers and illnesses that you believe were related to that work? My two closest uh, comrades who were senior to me were, were nearest that weapon all the time. Both of those died within the first uh, 10 years after they left. Uh, subsequently, just in 95, I contacted these 25. I got some communications back from them, and I've since gotten letters and, and uh, telephone calls from three widows of comrades that I'm, I'm now speaking to widows rather than my friends. So now, but with this is it's it's terrible news that you're getting. But at the same time, you can advance this class action suit. You've got you. This has now been approved. So at this point, you feel though at least you've been able to. You, you might be able to help those who have survived. You might be able to get them justice. Is that what you're thinking? Absolutely, ma'am. To to folks like you and others that are willing to put this information out before enough people. Uh, the military needs, the Air Force needs to get involved. They're the ones that are supposed to have the records. And, but you need to find it because they need to find the people that were... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Victor, I, I, I hope you do find them. It's just an, an extraordinary story, and I, I do appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, and God bless your Canadian Air Force also. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Victor Score is a retired Chief Master Sergeant with the U.S. Air Force. He was in Las Vegas. In a statement to the New York Times, the Air Force maintained its assessment that the Palomares troops had not suffered harmful exposure to radiation. You can find more on this story on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. First dates, ugh, I know, right? You never know what to expect. What if you don't have anything to talk about? What if they don't look like their profile picture? 
What if they make you the unwitting accomplice in a felony? Okay, so you probably usually don't have to worry about that last question, but maybe you should, because that's what happened to a woman in Massachusetts. And her nightmarish story has been detailed by the Bristol County DA's office just in time for Valentine's Day. The date starts normally. She picks up her guy at his parents' house. Okay, so maybe he can't afford his own place. Might explain what happens later. She drives, and he's drinking wine in the passenger seat. That one's probably a red flag, but hey, maybe he's just nervous. He asks her to pull over outside a bank. Five minutes later, he's back, covered in sweat, wearing a hat and sunglasses. And in case you haven't guessed yet, Mr. First Date is clutching a gun and a bunch of cash. Go, he screams, and probably a few other words. Panicked, she hits the gas and drives until she hears police sirens closing in. That's when she pulls over in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. The date finally ends with police dragging him away, kicking and screaming. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced this week to five years in prison. No charges for the getaway driver, though, because even the police agree a first date from hell is punishment enough. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and click on the daily full episode link. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Karen Gordon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.